hello. Hey, Jose, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us today. And uh, welcome, everyone, to the New Americans podcast. I'm happy to have uh, with me today Dr. Jerry Garcia, Vice President of Medical Education for CMAR Community Health Centers. For our listeners, Dr. Garcia, please talk to us about the history of CMAR and the services it provides. Sure. So the, uh, the full name of the organization that I work for is called CMAR uh, Community Health Centers. It uh, started back in 1978, so it's, it's a little bit over 43 years old. And uh, it's, got a, it's got a great uh, origin story. Uh, it's part of the Chicano movement, uh, student movement up here in the state of Washington. Uh, as, we, you know, as we probably all know, regardless of where we're located, there's always been a strong need for affordable health care for our Chicano Latino community, uh, and even more so back in the 60s and 1970s. And so as the Chicano movement was emerging in the late 60s, early 1970s, some of our first Chicano, Chicano students here in Washington state were getting the opportunity to go on to the university after they graduated high school. And uh, part, part, you know, the reason why that's important is because the origins of CMAR is embedded within the students that entered the University of Washington back in 1968. And in fact, they were, they were, they were part of the first major recruitment effort I'm part of the university. Uh, but I put a little caveat to that. Because it wasn't, you know, traditionally you think the admissions office would go out and recruit these students. But in this particular in this particular instance, it wasn't the admissions office. It was actually the Black Student Union. Because the Black Student Union happened to be the largest group on campus, minority group. And they understood that in eastern Washington, there was a large contingent of Chicano Chicano students uh, who could be reached to go to the, to go to the university. So they approached the university and the university funded them. So that, you know, so that's a good thing. I'm part of the university. So it was a black student union uh, that went out to Eastern Washington and began knocking on doors uh, saying, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're going to graduate, come, come to university of Washington. And that's how we got our first kind of large contingent of 35 students in 1968 to go to university of Washington. Now, having said that, there's no doubt that you could find, you know, one or two or three, Latinos, Chicano Latinos on that campus, but the numbers were very, very, very small. And this was, as I mentioned, the first effort that the university made to recruit Chicano students to to the UW. Now, the you know why is this all important? It's because those students that went there in '68, '69, they were heavily influenced because of the modern civil rights movement. You know, being headed up primarily by individuals like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and others, the Black Panther Party. And they had the, those groups, uh, along with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, had a major impact on these students. So not only did they get a great education, but they, they became some of the strongest activists on campus. And then um, to kind of cut, cut to the chase here, it's these students that understood that there was a strong need uh, for affordable health care. So when they graduated, they and some community members in the Seattle area formed a group to establish uh, CMAR, right? Um, and that's what happened after a few years of organizing, a few years of um, kind of drawing up the blueprint for it, they applied for a grant through the Department of Health. And with uh, $250,000, the first CMAR clinic was opened in the uh, Latino community in South Seattle, called called South Park. Uh, it's in South Seattle by Boeing Field. And that's kind of the kind of the origin. It's a great story, but I also want to add that you know there was kind of three movements that coalesced to create CMAR. Uh, I've mentioned most of them. The modern civil rights movement, the Chicano movement, student movement, Chicano student movement, but then also what's often forgotten and kind of left behind is the uh, community health care center movement. This is also a time period where community healthcare centers began to emerge as part of the war on poverty, and so in the 1960s, and so and so then CMAR um, is attached to that movement as well, and so there's a there's a great story there. In a nutshell, 
that's the origins. Uh, the first the first clinic opened in 1978 in South Park, in Seattle, and uh, I, maybe I can mention a little more about this later on. But uh, today in 2021, you know we're over 120 clinics up and down the I-5 corridor here in Washington, uh, from the Washington Oregon border all the way up to the uh, U.S. Canadian border. CMAR started with five employees. Now there are nearly 3,000 uh, people in the organization. And so, so again, it's, it's, a, it's a great story that's attached to these movements. And um, yes, yeah, so that's it in a nutshell, uh, Jose. And that's kind of the origin story of, uh, of CMAR. That is actually a good um, story, you know. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of interested also, like, you know, uh, you know that first, you know, you know the student activists in at UW uh, most likely helped um, with that creation along with BSU and right. um, other other uh, you know movements that were happening at the time. Yeah. Um, was there any other like, uh, and you did you did specify you did talk about like community organizations that were out there and so on, um, but there there's a couple that I remember, but I I don't know if they were attached to this um, that I heard of um, Northwest Rural Organization. is it opportunities or organization? I saw I saw um, a painting of it one time and I was like, yeah. who are they or what were they? Yeah. Were yeah, they attached uh, to any of that, or or were they just rural um, centers? Um, I'll mention a few brief, brief words about uh, that we call here in Washington NRO. It's Northwest Rural Opportunities. So you're you're correct, oh, okay. Northwest Rural Opportunities, and that was a program that came out of the War on Poverty. You know, Lyndon oh. Johnson's War on Poverty, and um, to me, it's a pretty important organization for the state of Washington uh, because uh, it provided. A, to a particular level, a sense of local control of some of the um, resources that the government was going to provide. Not full, not full control, not full autonomy, uh, but provided, um, you know, semi-autonomy to some of the uh, chapters that, that emerged uh, throughout the state of Washington. And then more importantly, uh, I think what it created was a, a cadre of new leaders in the state of Washington, uh, Chicano leaders. Right, coming out of the rural communities, and most of them, you know, be quite honest, most of them uh, had no college education, and I'll be quite honest, you know, barely had a high school education. So mm -hmm. these were individuals that that lived in a lot of these small rural communities, right? Like Granger, Grandview, Quincy, Moses Lake, Othello. You know, these are all agriculture uh, communities back in the '60s and '70s, all controlled by the white power structure. And so when the Opportunity came up. The Northwest Rural Opportunities came up. A lot of the local local leaders, right, who have been involved in their communities, um, you know, because in the end, I'm a, I'm a strong believer is that you, you don't need a formal education to be a good leader. You just got to be a good leader. And and there's definitely uh, a lot of these individuals. And one that I'll mention was uh, Tomas Benanueva uh, from from Granger, Washington. He was a fantastic organizer, community organizer, great leader. And, uh, you know, again, I think I'm not even sure if he had a high school, high school diploma. I think I read somewhere where he got his GED. But but again, you know, he's a good example of, of what can be done uh, just with, you know, that that sense of community and the need. And so so the NRO then, right, the NRO, Northwest Rural Opportunities, uh, in, in my opinion, created this cadre of leaders that would go on and uh, be part of other organizations. Because the NRO here in the state of Washington lasted for about about 10 years uh, throughout, uh, throughout, throughout its history. And uh, another individual that I think is pretty important that came out of the NRO, or at least, at least was part of it, was uh, Sam Martinez, mm. who was from the, the Yakima Valley and then would be instrumental uh, at the University of Washington as one of the Chicano counselors. And he would be a great mentor to some of these students that I mentioned a, a little bit earlier, right? So, so when Chicanos arrived on campus, they had one or two individuals from a similar background that were there to guide and mentor these students. And, uh, and he did that. He was uh, uh, very successful uh, in doing it. Wow, that's good insight. Yeah, I, 
you know, I did my oral research project on Tomas Villanueva. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he's from Toppenish, um, but he definitely uh, was a big um, influence in creating the Farm Workers Union. Right. Um, or, I mean, I'm not creating the Farm Workers Union, but the Farm Workers Clinic. Um, and he benefited from, uh, you know, uh, Cesar Chavez, you know, educating, you know, going and learning from him directly. But yeah, Tomas Villanueva was an uh, amazing uh, uh, advocate in the community, uh, specifically in civic engagement. So, correct. I, I'd like to move on to something that I'm really captivated by, and that is the CIMAR Museum of Chicano Latino Culture. How did that, like, how did that become a reality? Yeah. I know, I know when I was in Washington, they, they were dreaming about it, and this is like 2005. Yeah. And then 2000. 2016 hits and it becomes like okay now there's groundbreaking so how did that happen and and who were the movers and shakers yeah that helped create that yeah that's a great question and um yeah you know i've always heard you know about people whispering that you know we should create a museum there's not a museum about chicanos there's african-american museum asian-american museum um uh, norwegian uh museum then you got all the mainstream white museums, and but nothing about Chicanos. And I remember, um, you know, so I haven't said too much about myself, but before I came to CMAR, I spent uh, 17 years as a university professor. I was a professor at Michigan State University, and that's when I first came into contact with this idea of a museum. In fact, in fact, I was contacted by two entities. The first one I can't even remember, but it was somebody from the Yakima Valley reaching out to me. And saying, would you be, you know, would you be uh, willing to be part of our kind of a committee to organize a museum? Um, and of course, I said yes. Uh, but then it, it just floundered and it didn't go anywhere. And I, I think I might have received just that one message, and I never heard anything back ever again. And it, so it went nowhere. And I, I know why. And I'll explain that here in a second. Okay. So then, so then, around 2006, 2007, you know, still at Michigan State University. You know, and, and a lot of my research has been on the Chicano community here in the Northwest. And so um, the CEO of CIMAR, whose name is Rogelio Riojas, uh, and who grew up as a migrant child in Othello, Washington, and was one of these first students I was talking about that went to the University of Washington back in the late 60s. Wow. He, he contacted me uh, because he knew about my research. And he said, would you be willing to be in our committee? Right. So same question again. Right. And I said, absolutely. Of course I would. And at that time, I didn't know a lot about Seymour. Um, I, I knew they existed. And uh, actually, my brother actually knew Rogelio. So I, I kind of knew a little bit about, about Seymour, but not a lot. And so when I got the second message, I said, okay, we're one step further now. I got two messages. <laughs> and so, and so uh, but then it was an important message because Rogelio said, hey, we're going to have a meeting and I want to fly you back to Seattle. And I said, okay, man, this is the real deal. And sure enough, you know, he flew, he flew me back to Seattle. We had a, 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 one of our first organizing meetings to talk about the museum. Uh, I'll stop there for a second and mention this. So then from conception, right, from the idea of a museum to opening in 2019, it's about 15 years, right, in between. And so it took about 15 years to, to open up that museum. And I'll be quite honest. I mean, Rogelio, I'm not sure where Rogelio got the idea, but Rogelio, you know, and I, I don't want to sound cultish or anything because I'm not that kind of personality, but Rogelio really has this major vision uh, for CMART that began back in 1978. And he's been, Rogelio's been the first and only CEO of CMART. He's been, the, he's been there since day one for 43 years. And he's in and the growth of CMAR. You know, he's had a team over the years, but I have no idea that the growth of CMAR is really because of Rogelio's uh, vision of what he wants uh, for the community. And uh, I did ask him this question one time because, you know, I know the history of, of, our, of our community really well. And, um, and I also know the history of like the Black Panthers and the Brown Berets. And Rogelio was a Brown Beret at the University of Washington. And so when you look at the Black Panthers and the and the uh, Brown Berets, and you, and you look at their uh, social economic uh, uh, platform, uh, what CMARS become is really what they envisioned, right? Uh, to create, 
you know, as, a, as an organization as Black Panthers or uh, Brown Berets. So I asked him that question, I go, hey, you were a Brown Beret. I mean, do, did a lot of your ideas, you know, from, from your time as a Brown Beret, uh, is that how you grew Seymour? Because it was that, it was that vision you had as a student and as a Brown Beret. And he kind of, he kind of, um, he did admit to that. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I'm yeah. not sure why. But uh, he said, no, uh, a lot of the ideas came after I joined Seymour. And uh, I began to look at the community. But I think sub- subconsciously, I think, I think, I think it is. I think, I think it is a reflection of him being one of these strong student activists, a Brown Beret, and uh, being politicized at the University of Washington. And um, so I think subconsciously, I think a lot of the, a lot of what Seymour has become is a reflection of his time as a Brown Beret. Because look at it, affordable, affordable health care, Brown Beret platform. Affordable housing, Brown Beret platform. <laughs> Educational opportunities, Brown Beret platform. You know, so you can go on, on and on. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, so then, um, but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is Rogelio really had this strong vision and the museum finally came to his head and said, you know, we got to have a museum. And so the, I kind of understand now why most uh, people who talk about creating a museum, it it never, it it doesn't become reality. It's because of the cost, right? Our museum uh, cost over $15 million and uh, it's self-funded. We didn't have to go to anybody to fund it. You know, CMAR, CMAR is a private nonprofit. And so, so CMAR funded, even if we were to charge $5, think about a working class family that has five or six people in the family. You know, they're not going to be able to afford to come to our museum. So what we're doing is creating barriers by charging. So we decided not to charge at all. Um, and so, so, uh, so our community can come visit us. And we had an explosion of visitors, you know, for four months that we were open before the pandemic shut us down. So, 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 so the museum then is also about this because I often get this question uh, when I do presentations on the museum is, you know, how, how did a healthcare provider come up with the idea of a museum? And I tell them part of the story I already told you and the audience will say, but also I tell them this, is that mm-hmm. the museum is actually part of healthcare, right? That if you look at the museum and if you look at CMAR, it's kind of holistic approach to healthcare. Yeah. In this, in the sense of uh, overall well-being, that it's important. For example, uh, we have tremendous educational opportunities in our in our organization because all the research shows that if you get a high school education, get a college education, the likelihood of an individual having uh, employee insurance is is tremendous, tremendously high. Which means this, that if you have insurance, that you're not going to go to the hospital just during emergencies, right? That you're going to be able to go to the clinics for preventive care, right? Before you get really sick, right? So that's part of CMAR's kind of a rationalization for a lot of what it does. It's trying to address these, what we call social determinants of health, right? So if you, if you lack education, the only time you're going to go to the hospital is when you're very, very sick, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you can't take the pain no more or... You know, you're infected, et cetera. All right. And by that time, it's very late. You know, depending on, on the ailment, you could die or you could get amputated or you could be in the hospital for days or weeks. And so we, we try to prevent that by uh, giving people opportunities to get an education. And what I mean by that is we mentor students, we provide scholarships to students, uh, and we push the idea of an education and how important it is to um, uh, the social, deter- social, de- social determinants of health. This, the same thing about CMAR. CMAR is one of the other beautiful things about CMAR is about 15 years ago, it began to build uh, affordable housing because it's also one of those social determinants of health that if you've got a roof over your head, affordable roof over your head, the likelihood of you um, having better health because of that, because you're not homeless, you're not living out of your car, right? The likelihood of you having better health because you're in a, in a home with a roof over your head, uh, it, it, that just spells better, better healthcare, right? So we got affordable housing, we got affordable healthcare, educational opportunities, and then now we bring in the museum. So what, one of the ideas was, if we can get Chicanos, Latinos to come to our museum and understand their roots, understand where they come from, understand their contributions that they have made to the state of Washington, 
then that's going to provide a stronger sense of self-identity, right? And, and our hope is that it empowers them and gives them a, a more kind of a, uh, a better understanding uh, of uh, their community and them as an individual, as Latino or Chicano, right? And that's also part of this overall holistic approach to, to healthcare. Because we all know, I mean, you know, the research shows that, you know, when, when communities of color, people of color, Chicanos and, and, and Chicanas, when they have a very strong self-identity, that's just, that's just so positive in many directions, especially when it comes to, you know, scholastic achievement. So, so, so then the Seymour Museum fits into Seymour's philosophy of, of great healthcare, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And so, you know, there's a, there's a quote that uh, our CEO, Rogelio, uh, gave. And right now I can only paraphrase it. Uh, but I use it in my PowerPoint presentations on, on the museum. It's actually the last slide. Because basically what he says is that um, it's important for the whole state of Washington to know who we are. Uh, and that and, and that we understand the importance of culture uh, in our self-identity. And our museum plays that role uh, for our community. Yeah. Now, I'd like to move on to something that I'm, I've also thought about. And that was you, Dr. Jerry Garcia. I, I was privileged to sit on a panel at National Association of Chicano Chicano Studies when I was actually um, going through college. And I sat on a panel with you about, and we were talking about rural areas and, and you're, I think you were writing a book at the time. And you, I've always thought about you, especially because of our symbolic interaction at that conference with uh, in the community. So I wanted to, uh, uh, just ask you, uh, Dr. Jerry Garcia, where did you grow up and what motivated you to get your PhD? Okay. Let me say a few words about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, most people, I guess, here in Washington, but maybe outside of Washington, don't know. Uh, but I grew up as a migrant, migrant kid, uh, probably just like you, Jose, in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but I grew up in a, in a small town called Quincy. Uh, Washington. It's, uh, you know, it's very typical. It's a very, you know, when I, when I was growing up uh, there, you know, 30 years ago as a teenager and young child, it was a, you know, a uh, community basically of two groups, Mexicans and whites. Um, there's essentially, I think maybe one African-American family, uh, maybe one indigenous family and a, a few uh, Japanese Americans. And so, so basically what we had was a kind of a, a bifurcated community based on Mexicans and, and whites. And of course, during that time period, uh, all the power was in the hands of, of white individuals. And uh, there's a book, you know, one of the things that I'll, that I'll mention, if I could do a plug of one of, of, one of my books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's actually my last book that came out uh, in 2017. It's called uh, Chicanx History in the Northern Borderlands. And there's a chapter in there that I wrote about my experience growing up in the state of Washington, but also in my hometown, Quincy. Uh, because it, it was in the 70s and 80s, your very typical small rural community in Washington, um, where all the power was in the hands of, of, of white people, you know, from the city council to the school boards, to the principals, teachers, et cetera, it was, it was all white, you know, so, so and of course, I, you know, I, I didn't have, uh, because we lacked, we lacked mentors uh, in Quincy, you know, Chicano Latino mentors. Yeah, um, I, I had no real strong sense of what was taking place uh, socially and economically uh, in regards to my position in that community when I was an adolescent and a teenager. It wasn't until much later, you know, as I became educated and actually got mentored right by other Chicano professors, that I began to realize the structure I lived in in, in Quincy. And so, so I start there, right? That's where I grew up. I was actually born there. Uh, in Quincy, Washington. Uh, so born and uh, did K through 12 uh, in Quincy. And and through that whole time period, 12 years, uh, I never had one Latino teacher. Uh, all my teachers were white. And that's not to say that they were bad in any way. Uh, it's just that I never, I never had a chance to see somebody that looked like me, right? Um, in, in a uh, successful role. And as a teacher, you know, and, you know, I, I still, I still believe that, uh, in the Chicano Latino community, teachers are still honored in our community. 
So, so I didn't, I didn't see any of that. And then, and then of course, this is very typical too, unfortunately, is that uh, I was never uh, counseled in regards to opportunities after high school. Uh, the only thing I was told was uh, the military might be a great place for you. Right. And, and that's what I did. You know, I graduated uh, when I was 17, went into the army for three years and got out before I was 20. And so, however, for a lot of people, there's, no, there's, no, there's, for a lot of people, there are, there's not a silver lining in that kind of a story, especially for uh, students of color. Uh, but I happen to get very, very lucky and, and very fortunate that I spent the whole time of my military uh, career, which was a total of three years, uh, in Japan. Oh, and, wow. that, and that had a big impact on me for a variety of different reasons. One that I'll mention here in a little bit. And so, and you know, there's kind of an irony in the story is that, um, you know, there's no doubt that everybody has the ability to succeed and go to college, right? Even, even Chicano Chicanas from Quincy, Washington. Uh, they just got to be given the opportunity. And so, so I was tracked into the military. And I, I always want to share this story because uh, I know it still happens today that, um, and there's nothing wrong with joining the military, especially if, if you're given choices, right? As for example, what my school did not do was say, Jerry, here are your options, right? You graduate, stay here and do work, primary, something related to agriculture. Uh, you can go to community college, you can go to university, right? Or you can join the military, right? These are some of the options that you have. Uh, but none of that was given to me except the, except the military. And so that was the kind of a, you know, just from a, right? And, and that's what I did. You know, I graduated uh, when I was 17, went into the army for three years and got out before I was 20. And so, however, um, for a lot of people, there's, there's, not, there's, for a lot of people, there are, there's not a silver lining in that kind of a story, especially for uh, students of color. Uh, but I happen to get very, very lucky and, and very fortunate that I spent the whole time of my military uh, career, which was a total of three years uh, in Japan. Oh, wow. and, that, and that had a big impact on me for a variety of different reasons. Um, one that I'll mention here in a little bit. And so, and you know, there's kind of an irony in the story is that, um, you know, there's no doubt that everybody has the ability to succeed and go to college, right? Even, even Chicano Chicanas from Quincy, Washington. Uh, they just got to be given the opportunity. And so, so I was tracked into the military. Um, and I, I always want to share this story because uh, I know it still happens today. And there's nothing wrong with joining the military, especially if, if you're given choices, right? As for example, what my school did not do was say, Jerry, here are your options, right? You graduate, stay here and do work, primary, something related to agriculture. Uh, you can go to community college, you can go to university, right? Or you can join the military. Right? These are some of the options that you have. Uh, but none of that was given to me except the, except the military. And so that was the kind of a, you know, just from a, you know, a practice in regards to an uh, educational institution, that's, that's, what it, that's what should have been practiced by and should be practiced by all schools, right? Is give students opportunities and choices of what to do. Uh, because when you come from a background that I came from, a migrant background, my, my parents, none of them graduated from high school. My dad just had a third grade education from Mexico. My mom, uh, uh, I think uh, she, went, she went to top of high school, but she didn't graduate. And so they didn't have any of the experience um, to, to mentor and guide me. And, and uh, I, I know that's still going on today. And so, so the message I'm sending when I tell the story is that you have to give student choices. That you should not base, you should not base um, their direction in life on what they look like. Right? Because, and this is why I mentioned my book. Because uh, I talk about this a little bit in my book. And one of the things that happened is that uh, Chicanos throughout the country, Washington, and of course my hometown, Quincy, or your hometown, which is in the Yakima Valley, Jose? Yeah, Sunnyside. Yeah, Sunnyside. So what, what happens when you have a system in place like that, where it's all white teachers, um, the labor that our parents do, right, in agriculture, whether it's in the fields or in the packing sheds, etc., is reflected back on us in the schools, right? And so a lot of the teachers and the counselors, you know, they see our parents and they say, oh, this is what, what Jerry's going to be, 
right? He's going to work in agriculture, right? So, so it's a, it's that institutional form of racism, discrimination, um, that um, it's it's not the overt type. It's the, it's the kind of covert, subtle form of institu- institutionalized racism that still exists today, unfortunately, for a lot of our our young uh, Chicanitos uh, in um, in the K through 12, 12 system. Mm-hmm. But at least now, right? At least now, in some places, you know, we have here in Washington, Chicanos, Latinos, who are actually teaching in the schools and become principals and actually superintendents. Uh, but let me give you a couple demographic numbers here, real quick, to put this all in context. So when I grew up in Quincy back in the seventies and, and eighties, the uh, population of my hometown was maybe three thousand five hundred. You know, very very small. Right? And Chicanos, Latinos made up about um, maybe 10% of that population. But in the schools, we represented maybe 25%, right? Mm-hmm. So not, not huge. We fast forward to 2021. The population now is about 7,000. So it's, not, it's nearly doubled. Mm-hmm. Um, the schools now are, the school district is now 95% Latino, Chicano Latino, 95%. Right. So that's, a, that's an amazing um, trajectory uh, over the last 30, 35 years. Right. But what hasn't changed is the schools. Right. Mm-hmm. They're still all white teachers. Right. All the uh, power structure in the schools is, is white. Right. And it, it amazes me. Right. That you have a school that's that's 95 percent Latino. And they can't find Latino teachers to come in and be mentors and, and role models. Um, you know, and so many times I get so frustrated that I, I want to move back to Quincy and just start a movement <laughs> in my hometown <laughs> for, for Latino teachers. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah, because it just baffles me, right? I mean, so when you have when you have something like that, I have no doubt that's deliberate. I mean, there's no way you could have a population like that and say, oh, we can't find Latino teachers. Right. So something deliberate is happening there where they're making no effort to go out and, and recruit Chicano Latino teachers, none whatsoever. Right. And so it's, so it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But that's the system that I grew up in. Right. And, and that now, you know, in my later years, I talk a lot uh, in my writings uh, in regards to the system because it's still in play. And I, I just want people to be able to not only recognize it, but understand that it's a continuing form of institutional racism that exists now it doesn't mean you know that every teacher is racist or discriminatory because they're, they're, you know so what's happening is the institution is discriminatory and because it's been there for so long the teachers just don't recognize it right or if they do they ignore it and they say things like so typical things like oh that's the way it's always been right and so mm-hmm. so then um uh, you know having said that quincy has changed a little bit right some of the City council members are are Latino now. Some of the school board is Latino now, uh, but but then you know we can get into the weeds further and say, well, right, uh, if we want progressive movements to happen in small towns like Quincy, you got to have progressive Latinos on the school boards, right? Uh, not people who are, you know, not going to do anything about the structure that's, you know, holding a lot of Chicanos back and Latinos back, and so that's what happens. I mean, we know, right, if, you know digging into the weeds and getting political, we know that a lot of Latinos are, are conservative Republicans, right? And when you grow up, when you grow up in a community in Eastern Washington, most of those communities are conservative and Republican communities, right? And so, and that trickles down into the Chicano Latino population. So, so I have no doubt that uh, a lot of those members, um, even if they are Chicano Latinos are still conservative and, and Likely Republicans. I, mean, I can't say for 100% all of them, but I have no doubt that that's, that's part of the, the reason why not a lot has changed. And, yeah. You know, so, yeah, you know, we could say the same thing about the Yakima Valley. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, and, and I don't know a lot of details about California politics, but, you know, Jose, you probably know that, you know, uh, Western Washington is blue and Eastern Washington is red. Right. Oh, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, that's where all the growers, primary all the growers that live over there in Eastern Washington, the majority are white and Republican and conservative. Right? So, 
So, but the good thing is that we got the majority of the population in Western Washington. That's why uh, the state's blue and had yeah. been for, for, you know, a long, long, long time. Um, so anyway, uh, that's where I grew up. Went to the military, got mentored in the military. They told me, Jerry, get out of the army. You belong in college. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the, that's the irony, right? Is that the military recognized my, my potential as a college student. And uh, cause I was going to, I was going to set up again for another three years and they're going to, you know, they're offering me a great deal, but then a couple of my great um, uh, mentors there that I had who were, you know, uh, sergeants and staff sergeants who were higher ranked than me. They, they said, Jerry, you know, you, you should be in college. Uh, and so I took their advice. I got out uh, a couple of benefits from military. It's like I had a GI bill that paid for my undergraduate degree. And so uh, very fortunate. Uh, so I did my undergraduate degree at Eastern Washington University. I did my master's degree at Eastern Washington University, and then did did my master did my PhD at Washington State University. Go Cougs! Nice. Yeah. And so, uh, and I've always been interested in history. And so I got a, my trainings in history. Right? I got a background in history, um, and uh, I studied uh, Chicano history, Mexican history, and Latin American history in general. And then, uh, very fortunate, you know, right during my last year of uh, the PhD program, I got a job offer. Uh, out in the Midwest, right? So actually my first job was at Iowa State University. And, uh, you know, it was a great place to start. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed it there. That's where I got my feet wet, uh, as they say. And, and then from there, I moved on to Michigan State University, uh, which I loved. And then I got I got lured back, as they say, to become the director of Chicano Studies at Eastern Washington University. And uh, shortly thereafter, I left and then, and then uh, did some writing. And then uh, Rogelio came knocking at my door. Uh, from CMAR wow. and uh, asked me to come work for CMAR. And, and uh, I, I initially rejected the first offer, right? And because uh, I wasn't ready to leave academia primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then three years later, uh, he asked me back. And, um, you know, it's, it's like uh, in The uh, Godfather, he made, he made me an offer I could not refuse. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I said, okay, man. That's a good deal. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I've been here. I've been here at Seymour since 2018, summer, August. In fact, I'm going to be celebrating my third, third, uh, third year with Seymour, uh, August 20th. And so, so you know, my my academic career has been. It was great. Uh, I still got my foot in it. Yeah, you know, I'm not completely out of academia. Um, you know, I've, I've I've been very fortunate to have published uh, in multiple disciplines. Um, you know, I published books and articles and and. Um, but you know the 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 funnest stuff that I do in regards to writing is when I'm able to write about my community uh, here in Washington uh, or about my parents' experience. Right? And so I have a couple of stories about my parents and a couple of my books uh, about their about their journey, right, and their experience uh, mm-hmm. coming up from uh, you know Mexico, uh, Texas, and then eventually here to Washington. And so I get I get a lot of joy uh, out of that. Um, you know, my getting back to my experience in Japan, here's how it paid off is that um, when you become a PhD student in, in history, you eventually got to write a dissertation, right? Which is an unpublished book, basically. And, um, and I took a class at Washington State University on, uh, it was on Mexico. And, and one of the books that I read uh, was, was a book called uh, The Streets, The Secret War in Mexico by Friedrich Kantz. And basically it was about World War One and a lot of political intrigue, et cetera. But in that book, they mentioned the movement of Japanese into Mexico. And then as soon as I read that, I think it was like a paragraph. It, it just like, uh, you know, as, as they say, I got full clarity at that moment. Uh, and then and then it, it harked me back to Japan. And one of the things that, uh, as you probably know, even as a civilian, is that when you're in the military, you got to have your, your haircut high and tight, right? Short. Mm-hmm. And so I would go get a haircut, you know, every couple of weeks. Um, and where I would get a haircut was on the base, but it was uh, uh, Japanese people that, that ran the shops. And I would always go to this to this Japanese woman uh, who cut my hair. And I swear, Jose, for the first year, we didn't say a word to each other. I just went in and got my haircut and I got out. Then, fi- then finally, we started a conversation one day, and uh, 
you know, I had uh, I had one of those jobs, and again, I, I'm revealing some military uh, secrets here. Uh, but it's been so long, I don't think I'll be arrested. But <laughs> I had a job over there that uh, I couldn't wear a uniform. I had to wear civilian clothes. Mm. And so, uh, so she always wondered, you know, like, why, why is this guy always getting a haircut? You know, he's a civilian. But I wasn't really a civilian. I was in the military. But but nobody could tell because I, I never wore a uniform. And so one day she said, you know, basically, who in the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically what she asked me. I go, well, you know, she goes, where are you from? I go, I'm from the United States. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an American. And she goes, you, you don't look American. And she goes, well... Yeah, and it's a typical response, right? You know, Japanese kind of have this version of Americans being um, all blonde and blue-eyed. Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, I told the short story of my parents being from Mexico and they immigrated to the United States and I was born, you know, in the U.S. And then as soon as I said that, she goes, oh, did you know that Japanese went to Mexico? You know, and at that time, I was like 19 years old. I was clueless to that. And in fact, when she told me that, it, it really didn't resonate, you know, because I was 19 years old in the military and, and uh, immigration, history, uh, or movement of people to other places just uh, wasn't on my radar at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never forgot it because now we fast forward about 10 years. So from that conversation, when I was about 19 to the time I joined uh, the PhD program was about 10 years. And as soon as I read that, that paragraph, going back to that paragraph in that book, it, it all came back to me, that conversation. And I said, that's my dissertation. That's wow. my dissertation, is nice. the movement of Japanese to Mexico. And and I wrote that as my dissertation, and then I wrote it as a published book um, in 2014. Uh, it's called um, Looking Like the Enemy, uh, Japanese Mexicans, um, the Mexican State, and U.S. hegemony, um, 1897 to 1945. So I, I kind of tell the first half of the Japanese experience in Mexico. I end it with World War II. Uh, and my future plan, if I can ever get back to it, is to talk about the present day experience of Japanese Mexicans in Mexico. Wow. And so, yeah, so, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny. Uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of us don't believe in, in fate, but uh, I've had a lot of these uh, moments where if something didn't happen in my life, I wouldn't be where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, so... Going to Japan, I think uh, there's a reason, you know, why I joined the military and went to Japan. And I think in the end, it was to format my dissertation topic that eventually make me a professor at the university and and, and take me on this journey where I'm at today. Right. So, 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 uh, irregardless of the reasons why my high school tracked me into the military, for me, right? I just say for me, uh, ended up being a, a great experience uh, that I carry with me to this day. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah, a good. So... I, I'm just thinking of, I saw, I saw a Vice documentary. It's a mini documentary about um, how Japanese um, currently uh, the young, the young folks in Japan. Uh, and I'm not saying a bunch of them, but there's a small group that's really into the Chicano lowrider scene. Sure. And, you know, they've been, you know, uh, creating, you know, businesses based on that idea and promoting you know, the Chicano lowrider scene right. in Japan. Um, so it's, I thought that was interesting. I was like, wow, this is, you know, they're talking like, you know, like they would back in the, you know, in the 70s or 60s and you know, maybe late 80s, and 90s. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool to see. Yeah, you know, let me, uh, I, I'll say something. I mean, this is another kind of topic that I'm interested in. Is something that kind of related to what you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, Jose, is that um, unless you unless you study immigration, immigration patterns in, in Japanese and in Latin America, most people don't know this history that I'm about to tell you, is that um, in the 1980s, there was a time in Japan where there were, short of workers, right? And they had no workers. Like, for example, the type of work I'm talking about is this. They had no janitors. They had no no gardeners, no, you know, people doing manual labor, the sweepers, the cleaners. They had a massive uh, kind of gap in that, in that, in those industries. So then somebody came with this idea that 
why don't we ask the Japanese in Latin America who went to went to Latin America? Why don't we ask them if they would be interested in coming back to Japan to not to not just connect with the roots, but obviously to work to work for us? Because here's here's the here's the idea behind that, and and uh, Japan is very xenophobic, and always has been if you look at its history, right? They don't they don't they don't take too kindly to foreigners living in Japan for a long time. And so, uh, you know, because they could have easily gotten Koreans or from people from the Philippines, any area in Asia, right? Their idea behind this was that, well, at least these people are part Japanese. So they'll kind of fit in, right, uh, to our to our culture uh, in our society. Which, of course, was not accurate because there were there were Latin Americans, not Japanese, because <laughs> they grew up in Latin America. Uh, but there was a, there was a, several hundred thousand Japanese throughout Latin America, including Mexico, that went back to Japan, right? And and some are still there. So one of the interesting things about that is that uh, it would be interesting for somebody to go back to Japan, find some of these individuals who were Latin Americans, right, Mexicanos or Argentinos or Brazilians, and um, ask them how it's been for the last thirty years, or their children, right? Because, uh, because mm. you know, most of these people were born in Latin America. They just happen to be um, children, right, uh, or descendants of the original Japanese that went into Latin America back in the late uh, 19th century or early 20th century. So we're talking about, you know, 60, 70 years later that some of the, gr- the grandchildren are going back to Japan. So people who have very little knowledge of Japanese, very little knowledge of Japanese culture, uh, the only connection they have is that... Uh, one of their ancestors uh, came from Japan to Mexico or Argentina or Chile, et cetera. So uh, anyway, I throw that out for anybody in the audience that uh, needs a research project. There it is. Nice. That is a good one. <laughs> That's a really good one. Yeah. So uh, I like to end these, these dialogues and discussions with shout outs of people that you admire and help you through your journey and academia or your professional life. Sure. Um, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to uh, that's helped you in the way of that journey? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, as an undergraduate and graduate student, there's you know two individuals that were tremendous help to me, uh, great mentors, and these are the kind of things that uh, we often read about. Like, you know, if you have a good mentor, it'll help you along the way. You know, we we, we hear that quite quite a bit. Uh, I actually experienced that, right? So there was the uh, at Eastern Washington University when I was an undergrad and a, and a graduate, a master's student. And uh, Carlos Maldonado, the late Carlos Maldonado, he passed away in 2008. Mm-hmm. But he was a great mentor to me. Nice. Gave me a lot of opportunities uh, when I was in uh, uh, a student at Eastern Washington University. And also uh, Dr. Gilbert Garcia, mm-hmm. who, was, who was at Eastern, but now is at Central Washington University. Uh, but he also, I mean, he's really the one that probably mentored me the most in Chicano studies. Um, you know, and uh, I, I don't think I ever told this story, but, um, you know, I, I laugh about it now when I think about it. Uh, so when I was applying for PhD programs, uh, the one school, of course, I ended up going to was Washington State University. And they, they, all these schools interview you, right? They want to talk to you and kind of just see who you are and what your interests are, et cetera to see if they match up with the with their program and uh i took gilbert to that interview with me right so kind of like holding my hand <laughs> in the process and he sat there right next to me as my as the uh, department chair was interviewing me and uh, it was great man it was great because you know i think about that i think about that a lot quite, uh, i think about that a lot now but you know that's actually you know what uh, a great chicano chicano mentor does right is that uh, they have no problem holding your hand and, and t- sitting next to you in your interview, right? And uh, I don't know too many people who have ever done that, uh, but for some reason, I just felt comfortable with him there. And uh, so uh, it's an experience that uh, I'll never forget. Uh, I think it's pretty unique, uh, but he was there. He was there the whole way for me. And, and it's uh, a huge shout out to, uh, to that the Chicano brother. And, um, you know, and then along the way, you know, I'd say uh, at Michigan State University, uh, Teresa Melendez, who was the department chair for Chicano Latino Studies, she was awesome. 
awesome, awesome uh, Chican who, who mentored me uh, while I was there. Uh, also, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, Ben Smith. He was my Mexican colleague, and what I mean, what I mean by that, he was he was also a, a, a historian of Mexican history, uh, and uh, we worked a lot together. And he actually showed me a lot, a lot of the ropes in regards to how to be a, a good historian, right? Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, big shout out to my parents, right? My my first mentors, uh, mm-hmm. my mother and my father. So even though, I've, as I mentioned, you know, they, they didn't have a formal education, uh, but my first my first lessons in race relations was from my parents, right? My mother and my father. So they, you know, like I said, you don't you don't need to have a formal education to understand what is right and what is wrong. And uh, and they understood, right? You know, whenever my me or my brothers, you know, sometimes we, we we'd make uh, you know mistakes in our language. Uh, my brother one time used the N word, and uh, in the car, that car stopped in a in a heartbeat. And my dad got out, and you know, I go, okay, here it is. Uh, but no, he came back and he lectured us on why we shouldn't be using that word. And you know, we were like eight years old at the time. You know, you know, we didn't we didn't know we didn't know anything. Um, and so, so yeah, so I'm, so, so my parents, you know, I think all of our parents are, are influential. And of course I learned my, my work ethic, you know, from my, from my parents. Uh, and again, you know, another, another plug in for my book. I talk about that in my book. <laughs> so, nice. so if you're interested in those kind of family stories, uh, get the book called Chicanx History in the Northern Borderlands. And, uh, you get to read a great, a great story about, uh, Chicano family growing up in the Northwest. So, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I could go on and on, but uh, I think those individuals I just mentioned mm-hmm. uh, were probably the, the most uh, most influential uh, to me in my in, in my career. And the last person I'll mention was my uh, Ph.D. advisor, uh, Dr. John Kiza, who's also passed away. He passed away about, I don't know, five years ago. Um, and uh, uh, he was a strong believer in me, right? A strong believer. Never, never gave up on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, no matter how weak I might have seemed in the class, <laughs> uh, he said, "Jerry, you can do it, man. Just, just you know, dig in deeper, right?" And yeah, so and, and you know, and to be quite honest, I thought I knew about Mexican history and Latin American history when I got to the PhD program, but I didn't know that much. He taught mm-hmm. me the rest. You know, John Kiza, he taught me the the history that I use a lot now uh, in my books and my discussions, and so basically, he grounded me. He grounded me in uh, Mexican and Latin American history. So he's a great guy. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for having this conversation and listening to your stories. Are they're great? I you know I can't <laughs> wait to uh, you know edit this and send it out in the sphere. All right. Um, and I, I hope to work with you in the future with some some other stuff. Um, yeah. Okay. And we could talk in uh, more yeah. after this. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. We had a brief conversation before, and uh, it sounds like we have a, a couple of great topics. So uh, let's continue discussing those. And and thank you again, Jose Montoya, for for uh, inviting me onto this uh, onto this podcast. Uh, um, I, I really appreciate it when I get to share uh, some of these stories. Nice. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jerry Garcia. Have a good one and enjoy. Thank you. Okay. Gracias. Adios. Gracias. Bye. I'm not going to be able to do that.